Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada. Today we revisit Dr. Neufeld's series called Abraham, Father of All Who Believe. So let's join Dr. Neufeld now for the first message of this series entitled Abraham and the Christian Faith. To many people today, the world is full of a seemingly endless array of religions. Ask people how many religions there are, and they will, of course, not know, but they do know that religions are many and that they deeply impact the people who practice them. Now, from the seemingly endless variety of religions come two very different and both incorrect responses. One response is that all religions basically teach the same thing. Most of the time, what people have in mind is what has become known as the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But of course, this approach simply isn't true. Not only do different religions provide very different answers to the issues of life. Indeed, as has been pointed out more than once, the major religions of the world are not even asking the same questions. But for others, religions are simply negative. They say they frequently contradict one another. They, they cause endless wars. And since there are so many, they cause divisions among people. And so to them, it seems obvious that God couldn't have been speaking through all of them or even any of them. Well, those arguments are never going to end, but I suggest another approach. Let's ask a different question. How many different worldviews are there? And just in case you don't know what a worldview is, let me explain what it is that I'm asking. A worldview is a way of seeing the world. In case you haven't noticed, no one simply looks at the world in an objective way. Everyone, without exception, asks the question, and here it is, what is the meaning of what I'm seeing? Let me give you a silly little illustration. Years ago, when I was a young man, I was just a bit foolish. I was attending Bible college, and I don't remember why it was, but a friend of mine and myself, well, we decided to break into the library, spend some time reading, sometime around one o'clock in the morning. And then to our amazement and surprise, the lights turned on, and one of our profs walked into the library. I mean, what he was doing there at that time of the night, well, I'll never know. But there he was, and my friend and I were left hiding behind one of the bookshelves, hoping that we wouldn't be caught. I remember my friend whispering to me, I mean, what are we going to say if we get caught? And in a moment of lunacy, I suggested that we say that human bodies occupy space. And our bodies just happen to be occupying this space at this time. You know, but of course, if we had been caught, our professor would never have been satisfied with that answer. Although it was most assuredly true that bodies do occupy space and that ours were occupying space in the library at 1 a.m., simply witnessing events as they are would never have been enough. I mean, our professor would rightly have asked, what's the meaning of these events? And that is so for everyone. We can't just observe events and things as they are without asking, what does it mean? And the answer of the question of meaning is the question of one's worldview, how one views the world. And so whether we're experiencing sexual urges or engaging in warfare or farming our land or building a structure or becoming sick or witnessing the birth of our child or witnessing the death of our child, Human beings are so created to ask the question of meaning. 
So a worldview is the explanation of what it is that we're experiencing. It's the lens through which we look at the world that provides us with the answers that we so desperately need. Now, every worldview operates on a set of assumptions or what others have called presuppositions. You know, these are things that we presuppose to be true, and it is through these presuppositions that we filter all of our other experiences. Furthermore, all worldviews begin by asking and answering the most important question of all. And here it is. What is absolute or prime reality? What is the thing that is most real or most important? What's the beginning point, that, that one fixed thing that helps me understand everything else? And I would suggest that there are only four potential answers to that most important question. And so, worldview number one is naturalism. Naturalists argue that nature is ultimate reality. Indeed, nature is the only reality. It's the only thing that exists. All that exists can be explained by science, by appealing to molecules, and the physical property of all things. And so the explanation of everything, from falling in love to going to war to living and dying, is answered through the lens of science or of nature. That's the viewpoint of the atheist. If you're depressed, well, the chemicals in your body are out of whack. If you die, well, it's because a biological system failure and there's no other explanation. And if you fall in love, while certain dopamines are operating, it's an evolutionary process to ensure the survival of the species. That's one worldview. Now, worldview number two is polytheism. You know, that worldview says that the the gods are the explanation of all things. And since the gods are fickle and sometimes they fight among each other, well, their quarrels and their moods determine what we experience today. And worldview number three is pantheism. Now, this view says that everything is divine. The moon, the rivers, and the trees, both love and hate, war and death, it's all part of one spiritual reality that emanates all things. So when we die, we simply merge back into that one eternal reality. And worldview number four, well, that's monotheism. It's the view that says that only God is eternal and that there's an infinite distance between the physical world and the eternal God who is the explanation of the physical world. Now, well over half of the world's population are monotheists. Now, these are the four answers to the question of what is ultimate. See, that alone is surprising to many people. We thought there were endless belief systems, but in fact, there are only four, perhaps five major worldviews. Furthermore, the second largest group of worldviews, that of pantheism, is less than half the size of the largest group, and that belongs to monotheism. Well over half of the world's population are monotheists. Now, to that surprising fact, I add another one. Some 4,000 years ago, in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans, which, to use our framework today, was an ancient city some 300 kilometers southeast of Baghdad, on a bend of the original course of the Euphrates River. In that place, in Ur of the Chaldeans, probably around 2100 BC, a man was born whose name was Abram. And what happened to him has directed the thinking of over one half of the Earth's population today. Indeed, to put it another way, every single monotheistic system in the world traces its origin to this one man, Abram. Jews, Christians, Muslims all call Abram their father. 
I know that Sikhism is a kind of hybrid religion. It holds to reincarnation, but it, but it also believes in but one God. Yet it, too, came to the conclusion of monotheism through their contact with Islam and so also were impacted by Abram. Abram, from any objective evaluation, has changed human civilization. If you think there's only one God, there are no alternatives of who that one God is. It is the God of Abram or Abraham. Now, here's the tragedy. You know, you can attend Canadian schools from kindergarten to grade 12 and not know that. A great frustration about living in a secular culture is that not only does a secular culture reject the notion of God, but they're completely ignorant of the most powerful drivers in all of human history. To graduate from high school and not know who Abram was and what impact he's made on the world today is to be hopelessly undereducated. It's to be kept in intellectual darkness. Now, I hope that I've piqued your interest. Now, before I move on, let me just briefly touch on the different ways that Jews, Muslims, and Christians view this man. See, in many ways, Islam is not a historical faith. Islam's view of Abraham has become disconnected from the historical documents. And so Muhammad's vision takes priority in many places over the real historical events. But for Christians and Jews who influenced Islam, Abraham's history is treated with a great deal of earnestness. The difference between Christians and Jews is that for Christians, the account of Abraham leads eventually to the person of Jesus. But that matter set aside for now, we're still forced to ask, is what we know of Abram, who later becomes Abraham, is what we know of him from the book of Genesis a historically accurate account? See, what's really fascinating here is that Abraham's city of Ur, the birthplace of the man who impacted the world, was first excavated by Sir Leonard Woolley, 1922 to 1934. They discovered more than 100,000 clay tablets written in both Sumerian and in Semitic Babylonian dialects. Indeed, what was discovered in the excavation of Ur makes it very clear that the account in Genesis fits perfectly into that time period. Clearly, Genesis provides us with a real historical account. Laugh Again with Phil Calloway is celebrating its fifth anniversary in 2019. As a part of our celebrations, we want to invite you to join us for the Laugh Again 5th Anniversary Cruise aboard the Royal Caribbean Oasis of the Seas. From February 3rd to 10th, join Phil Calloway and friends in the Western Caribbean for a week of laughter, fellowship, and spiritual refreshment like only Phil can offer. Enjoy music and worship with award-winning musical guest Rika Seward. Is it time for a family vacation, a getaway with friends, or a much-needed break to a sunny destination? We'd love for you to consider taking your next vacation with Laugh Again and Phil Calloway for the trip of a lifetime. For more information, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or check out laughagain.ca. Laugh Again, truth bringing laughter to life. Here's what we learned from the archaeological digs of Ur, along with some of the digs of the other cities from that area. 
The population of Ur at the time of Abraham was about a quarter of a million people. But during Abram's earlier life, I mean, that part of his life that's not described in our Bible, Ur of the Chaldeans became the capital of the entire region from Babylon all the way up to Syria. Raw materials were imported into the city from as far away as India, which was shipped up the Persian Gulf and then carried upriver to the harbor at Ur. We know of the fabric trade in which 12 different grades of cloth were produced in that city, to the trade in precious stones, to the shipbuilding trade, to pottery and so forth. Indeed, Abraham's Ur was not some backwater place. It was one of the most sophisticated cities in the ancient world. Furthermore, we also know that at the time in which Abraham lived, Ur was at a time of great peace and prosperity. It was one of the high points of the city's entire existence. Furthermore, the the city skyline was dominated by a massive temple tower, or what has been called a gigantic ziggurat. It rose about 80 feet above the street level. Now, if you don't know what a ziggurat was, you might be helped to think that a great many archaeologists and Bible scholars believe that the Tower of Babel, which would not have been far from Ur, was itself a ziggurat. So ziggurats were temples which were built in a square made up of sun-dried mud bricks mixed with straw with bitumen serving as mortar holding them together. They were typically three levels, one level built on top of another, kind of like a pyramid, and on top of the three tiers, there was a temple or a shrine. Now, while it was 80 feet high, it was also about 150 by 200 feet in dimensions on the bottom. Had a long stairway that led up all three levels, then a final stairway to the temple on the top where the priests could approach the gods. Around the temple on top, one could find one room surrounded by terraces and lined by trees. The structure was actually built during the years in which Abram would have lived in that city, and so he would have witnessed the growing popularity of polytheism as it would have been deeply felt in every single area of that society. Now, the ziggurat in Ur was dedicated to the god Nanar, who is a moon god who was served by many classes of priests. Next to the temple was the palace of the king, and around the temple was a large market and also a large, expansive library and a school which produced a vast amount of literature. If you want to know the worldview of the people of Ur, it was polytheism. According to Jewish tradition, Abraham's father, a man named Terah, traded in idols, household gods, meant as a form of worship and an appeasement to the gods. It was the family business. Um, That's affirmed in Joshua 24, verses 2 to 3, when some 500 years after Abraham, Joshua is rehearsing the history of Israel. Here's what he says. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. And as strange as it may seem to us, this is the beginnings of the Christian faith. Abraham in this place encountered the one true God, and what happened to him in that city gave rise to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it's very natural to ask ourselves, I mean, what is the relationship of a man living in Ur over 4,000 years ago and the worship of Jesus? Now, in order to answer that question, I want to take you to the Gospel of John in chapter 8. In that chapter, we find a lengthy and a heated debate between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders. 
A part of that debate centered around the meaning of Abraham. In verse 36, we hear Jesus saying, I know that you are offspring of Abraham. And yet, three verses later, in verse 39, there is recorded another part of that debate. See, they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. See, now from that text, we can see that Jesus allowed for two different ways of understanding the Jewish relationship to Abraham. One way was to prove that they could trace their genealogical lineage to Abraham, and the second was showing that they acted and believed in the way that Abraham did. Now, this debate gets further elaborated in the writings of the Apostle Paul. I'm reading Romans 9, verse 7. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. And the third chapter of Galatians, Paul will spend a considerable amount of time on that very theme. I'm reading verses 7 to 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now from that passage, we should notice two important themes. The first merely expands on what we've seen before. You can be a Jew or a Gentile and belong to Abraham if you have the same faith that Abraham had. But the second theme comes very close to the heart of the gospel of Jesus. Paul said that long before the time of Jesus, that is, before the gospel of Jesus was preached, Abraham himself heard the good news preached to him. Now, there's so much more that can be said about that theme. Perhaps what Paul had in mind is Abram's first initial encounter with God. Did he hear the gospel then? Or perhaps it was another encounter that Paul has in mind. When Abram is already in the land of promise, there will be an encounter on a night when he is instructed to cut a series of animals into two. And as the sun sets and he's, as he's driving the birds of prey away from the carcasses and as he's lapsing into a deep sleep and there God himself appears walking between the carcasses of the animals, at that time, Abram is given a covenant by God. Or perhaps Paul has in mind the day when three men came to visit Abram and one of them, we find out, was God himself. Now, each one of these encounters needs to be thoroughly examined, but in each one of them, we have the beginnings of the gospel of Jesus. Indeed, in the end of the debate with the Pharisees, recorded in John 8, 56 to 58, the debate takes a surprising twist. Jesus is speaking to the Jewish religious leaders. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And so whatever else we learn from that remarkable interchange between Jesus and the Pharisees, one thing stands out. Jesus placed himself in the very center of the account of Abraham. All the promises that were made to Abraham find their fruition in him. Jesus claimed that he was the subject and the object of Abraham's hopes and his longings. Indeed, one can never fully understand Abraham at all without seeing in him not only encountering the gospel, but encountering Jesus himself. So much more can be said, but at this point, it's time to make application. The Christian faith is deeply rooted in ancient history. 
a history not constructed on mythology and legend, but in real history with real people, countering the one true God, setting the stage for the development of the entire human race. Ours is an ancient faith rooted in fact. Ours is the revelation of the one true God, the only revelation of this one true God that the human race possesses. And it is for this reason that I must speak plainly to Christians living in Canada with its entrenched secularism. So often, at least, this is what I think. I think that Christians in our country fear that secularists or naturalists have truth on their side. But that's not the truth. Naturalism is but a minority position that boasts few facts to justify its worldview. Naturalism simply does not account for the real human story to say nothing of the encounter that the human race has had with the one true God. See, and for that reason, when when Christians study the life of Abraham, they're setting their roots deeply into that which is enduring, that which is historical, that which is true, and that which alone changes the human race for good. So in the coming weeks, join me in our study of Abraham and find your faith deepened and enriched in the process. Heavenly Father, I pray in Christ's name that we would find not only an amazing figure, that we would find, Heavenly Father, the reason why we trust in you. O Lord God, strengthen our faith. In Jesus' name. John, thanks for this beginning of a great series, and we look forward to four weeks of this. It's going to be fantastic. But let me ask you a question. Um, The whole idea of uh, our fear of the secular world in some respects, or our fear to to live in the secular world or to confront the secular world, is, is that an issue for us? Yeah, it seems to be very much of an issue, and I think there are a number of reasons why there's so much intimidation. And one is because, you know, the secular environment just simply owns every media outlet. They own the, you know, newspapers, they own the educational institutions, they own government. And so uh, we tend to be overwhelmed. But then also on top of that, a lot of Christians begin to believe that the answers that we have to give are not historical answers or real-world answers, and that's simply not the case. I think one thing that we really need to do is to train Christians to, to know their faith, to understand who are the heroes of our faith, to understand the impact that they've made, not only in our faith, but in the entire world. See, all of this kind of stuff really changes the way in which we communicate. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. You've heard the expression, you never know what someone is going through until you walk a mile in their shoes. Well, I'm amazed and moved at the number of incredible testimonies we receive from people confronting tragedy. Recently, a close friend lost his brother-in-law in a motorcycle accident and his sister was left critically injured. A neighbor shared the news of their daughter, married and mother of two, diagnosed with brain cancer. The tragedies of life arise without warning, often ending with profound loss and grief. What a blessing that so many would choose to share their stories with us. It really highlights the powerful, hope-renewing message found in the Bible. The daily teaching of the Bible is a privilege of this ministry. 
please continue to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada by sending that all-important gift today. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online with your donation at backtothebible.ca.